the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 3, is where I want to direct your attention this morning. We're going to begin our time in God's Word by reading from Matthew chapter 3. Uh, I trust you had a good weekend. Last weekend I was in uh, uh, out of state at a speaking at a men's retreat, and Saturday night the topic was eldership. We were in First Peter 5, and we were talking about the elders, and I had the men in the retreat divided into groups, and they were supposed to, we made a list of all their elders in their church, and we were supposed to pray for them. And I was listening to the groups talk about the men in the list. They all said, I don't know who that is. I don't know who that is. I don't know which, who that guy is. And I said to them, if you don't know who your elders are, somebody is failing, either you or them. And uh, so then it reminded me of how important it is that our elders, A, participate in our service and introduce themselves every week as elders. So I'm grateful for them and uh, their leadership. And uh, we will be consulting this week about our uh, ongoing schedule as time moves forward. So Matthew chapter 3, though, let's read this passage of Scripture together. You follow along. As I read, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Last month we started walking through Matthew's account of the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first four chapters are uh, introduction. They focus on his birth. Here's how he came. That's the introduction. By the time we get to Matthew chapter 28, in about eight years, by the time we get to Matthew chapter 28, uh, uh, Matthew is going to make some astounding claims about the Lord Jesus. 
He's going to claim that he has all authority in heaven and on earth, which encompasses, of course, all nations in the world, all ethnicities, all countries, every continent, every people group. He's the supreme Lord. And because he is the supreme Lord, he is worthy of your highest allegiance. He makes a claim on your life for your supreme loyalty in every way. And part of that loyalty involves inviting others to follow him too. And here's the key question that Matthew tries to answer. Is Jesus worthy of that sort of allegiance? He claims it in your life. Is he worthy of that sort of allegiance? Before you give it to him, you better make sure. Several years ago, I think I was volunteering at a school event. I met a woman and we were talking about her family. And and, uh, her husband, she told me, is a rabid fan of the Detroit Lions. The Detroit Lions. And I said, well, is he from Michigan? No, no, this is a family thing. They have for years committed themselves to the Detroit Lions, which for decades has been a poor choice. His His whole basement is decked out with Detroit Lions stuff everywhere. He loves the Detroit Lions. He has committed himself to the Detroit Lions. And thus, every year he is disappointed. It's a bad decision. Don't ally yourself with the Detroit Lions at this point. Is it foolish for you to ally yourself with Jesus? That's what Matthew's after as he is writing this introduction to Jesus. That's why he includes these three scenes that we just read in chapter 3. I'm tempted to label this chapter, uh, it's not what you know, but who you know. I'd like to label it that way. It's not what you know, but who you know. You know that expression, right? You've heard it before. It's an expression that we use. You can quote it positively or can you quote it negatively. Um, Negatively, we use it to describe people who are promoted beyond their competence. Who they are, uh, who they... who they are um, is less important than who they know is to where they got, what position they got promoted to. You know, it's like the, the son of the company president suddenly becoming a vice president. Well, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Be prepared for the next eight months. You're going to hear this repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. Hunter Biden had no business being on the, oil com- the board of an oil company in Ukraine. And Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump have no business being in the West Wing. You're going to hear this all the time. It's not what you know, it's who you know. More positively, you could use that statement to encourage people to get to know people, to cultivate contact, make friends at work, talk to your professors, Build relationships with your colleagues and build relationships with your neighbors because who you know matters. Matthew's going to show us very soon what Jesus knows, and he knows everything. He's going to show us that. He can do everything. But in this chapter, the emphasis is on who Jesus knows. Did you notice that? At the beginning and at the end, there is this emphasis on a testifying voice. In verse 3, there's the voice calling in the wilderness, and it's John the Baptist. And in verse 17, there's a voice from heaven. It's God himself, God the Father, speaking. John the Baptist and God himself, and both of them speak to introduce you to the Lord Jesus. Here's how I want to walk through this text this morning. We're going to talk about the voices and listen in on what John and the Father say. They both continue to connect Jesus to the Old Testament. Matthew started it. John and the Father, God the Father, continue that connection. The full force of everything that's come before in the Scriptures finds its culmination in Jesus. 
This is Matthew's strategy. This is why you should be allied to him. If you have no allegiance to Jesus, here's, John's, here's Matthew's case. If you, are already, if you have already allied yourself with him, here's why you should keep going in it. Here's why you should go deeper in it. So let's start with John the Baptist, the first voice, the voice of John the Baptist. We step into chapter 3 about 30 years after the last episode in chapter 2. Um, there's nothing described about uh, Jesus' um, teenage years, his 20s, his, his, uh, most of his growing up years. We have one scene, of course, from the Gospel of Luke but when he was 12, but we really don't have many records about it. If I were making this a film, if we were filming Matthew, this is how we'd do it, right? We'd end chapter 2, and we'd have Mary and Joseph. From the back, we'd see them walking, Mary and Joseph and Jesus. He's a little boy by now. He's walking. Maybe, maybe they've had another baby already. So Mary and Joseph and uh, a little baby and Jesus walking into the town of Nazareth. They're going to settle in the town of Nazareth. Jesus is a little boy, and the scene fades to black. Then in chapter 3, the scene opens again in the wilderness. And into the center steps John, an unusual-looking man. Verse 4 says that he wore clothes of camel's hair. You can spend a lot of money on a nice camel hair jacket. That's not what he's doing here. Okay? This, is not, this is not what he's got. He's got a leather belt, but that, no, no, it's not, that's not it. Um, and that's not even the strangest thing about John. Look at his diet. He eats bugs. And forages for honey. I don't know if I was filming this. I'm not sure. Would you show John first, you know, like sneaking up, catching a bug and eating it? Would you do that? Sorry. Would you do that? Is that how you, would that, in, in the mouth goes the locust. I, did he cook them before? I hope so. I hope so. Locust. Here's a man who apparently does not care what he eats or what he wears. But boy, can he draw a crowd. People come from everywhere to hear this guy. Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region. I mean, people are flocking to him. What does he say about Jesus? Three things. First, he testifies that Jesus is the culmination of Old Testament prophecy. He's the culmination of Old Testament prophecy. Boy, have we seen Matthew emphasize this already several times. Look at how Matthew introduces John. Verse 3, this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord who makes straight, make straight paths for him. Starting in the book of Deuteronomy and building all the way through the rest of the Old Testament, there was this growing expectation that before the Messiah, before God's anointed leader comes, he would be preceded by a messenger. There would be a forerunner. There would be a prophet who would herald the arrival of the Messiah, an advanced team. John's contemporaries would have been familiar with this. So this is the day, of course, before telephones and before newspapers and before telegrams and before Facebook and Twitter. And so they had no way of knowing this news that the king was coming unless somebody comes in advance and says, hey, the king's coming. Get ready. The king's coming. I've heard some people in uh, a joke about the English queen that wherever Queen Elizabeth goes, it always smells like fresh paint. Because before the queen visits... You mow the lawn and you sweep the sidewalk and you polish the silver and you fix the creaking stairs and you paint the walls. Get things ready. Smooth out the road. Why, John says, because the Lord is coming. John's not really interested. It says, 
prepare the way and make straight paths. He's not so much interested in topography as he is in spiritual preparation. We'll come back to that. Matthew is telling us here that all of the work of the Old Testament prophets culminates in John's introduction to the Lord Jesus. Uh, look at how 1 Peter writes about the work of the prophets. So 1 Peter 1, chapter, uh, verse 10. Look what he says. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was come to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances of which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. The prophets of the Old Testament wrote about the Lord Jesus, and sometimes it confused them. They were writing about Him. He is the culmination. He is the, the subject of what they were writing. Even when they didn't understand exactly what was going on, they were writing about Him. This reminds me a little bit of Wiley Coyote. Wiley Coyote and his, um, you know, the Coyote, Warner Brothers, and his, his obsessive hunt for the Roadrunner. So Wiley Coyote would set up traps, all kinds of traps for the Roadrunner, and he would try to tempt the Roadrunner into these certain places, and he would do it with a bowl of bird seed, always yellow, always round bird seed. And around the bowls of bird seed, Wiley Coyote would put signs, food, free food, eat here, 14 signs around the bird food, flashing signs, lit signs, all these signs to attract the Roadrunner to the food. Here's, here's what Matthew's saying. Isaiah, Micah, Hosea, Daniel, Amos, they're all pointing, and they're all pointing at the Lord Jesus. And John arrives here as the last of those prophets. He dresses like Elijah. I think that's why, why Matthew writes about his clothes, because he dresses like Elijah. And then look at the last words of the last prophet to Israel, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Now follow me here for a minute. Use your imagination, right? Don't you imagine that you're a young lady and you come into our church and you start to visit our church and start to attend and get involved and join the congregation. And for a couple months, you have been sitting in the same spot, because that's what you always do, and sit in the same spot next to this older woman, and you get acquainted, and she's very kind. She prays for you, she talks to you, she introduces herself to you. Uh, and then eventually, after a couple weeks, she says, I don't mean to pry, um, but there's this guy at church. His name is Gary. He's a nice young man. And you two might hit it off. I should introduce you to Gary. Fine. Before you get to meet Gary, though, you're in the nursery serving, and, and one of the people that you're serving with says, Have you met Gary? He's really a nice young man. I, I, wonder, I wonder if you could meet him sometime. The next week at growth group, one of your fellow growth group members says, Hey, I know this guy. His name is, and you say, Gary? Is he a nice young man? I've heard that, right? Everybody you know, the whole world, is talking to you about Gary and how you should know Gary. And you know what here? John the Baptist shows up and all the prophets, and together they say, you should know Jesus. You should follow Jesus. 
If Jesus calls you, don't let it go to voicemail. Pick up the phone. Follow him. John says that Jesus is the culmination of the Old Testament prophets. The second thing he says about Jesus is that Jesus is the one who brings the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is the one who brings the kingdom of heaven. Verse 2 of chapter 3, Matthew summarizes John's message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That was not the totality of his sermon. But here's a summary. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's actually the same message that Jesus preached. Look over at Matthew 4, verse 17. Matthew 4, verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom has come near because Jesus has arrived. Now, if we were moving through Matthew at a snail's pace, uh, this might be a place where I would stop for a week or two and talk about the kingdom. It's going to come up again and again and again in this book because the kingdom is one of the favorite topics that Jesus has. In fact, some people have said that the kingdom is Jesus' main topic in his ministry. This language, this language, kingdom of heaven, reminds us that we who are followers of Jesus, our loyalty, our chief loyalty is outside of this world. It's to a different reign, to a different rule, our highest allegiance. We are allied to this king, Jesus, and we are allied to his kingdom more than we are allied to anything else in this world. Our own country, our family, our company, our team, he has our highest Loyalty. Followers of Jesus, you can see it. It happens when we get confused about our highest loyalty. We get weird. When we confuse our national loyalty with our allegiance to Jesus, we will either exalt the nation or we will diminish Jesus. One of my favorite stories is about um, uh, George Shultz. George Shultz was the Secretary of State during the Reagan administration. And George Schultz used to invite newly appointed ambassadors into his office at the State Department. I don't know how he initiated this conversation, but he had a big globe in his office. And he welcomed Mr. Ambassador. Congratulations on your appointment. Can you on this globe find your country? You would hope they'd be able to, right? So they'd spin the globe around and they'd point, oh, Portugal, that's where I'm going. Or they'd point, Brazil, that's where I'm going. And they'd point, Nigeria, that's where I'm going. And George Schultz would very carefully spin the globe so that the United States was dead in front of them, and he would say, no, Mr. Ambassador, this is your country. You're living somewhere else, but this is your country. You are here to represent this country, regardless of where you live. This king that John is writing about, this kingdom, is, is the place that has our highest allegiance. Now, we have to think about what this kingdom is for a couple of minutes. Pages and pages and pages and pages have been written about this. Um, let me give you two senses of what the kingdom, um, uh, the word kingdom in Matthew and the rest of the Gospels actually refers to. We could think a couple of different ways. First of all, we could think about the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, a literal kingdom here on earth with Jerusalem as its capital, uh, in the land of Israel. And when we think about this kingdom, we think about King Jesus reigning on David's throne in the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament. Not all Christians agree that that's, that kingdom is envisioned in the Bible. Your view of it, here's some technical language for you, but 
you came to church in a pandemic, so you should be able to handle this. So uh, uh, your view of this kingdom determines in some ways whether you're an amillennialist, a postmillennialist, or a premillennialist. We'll let that bide for now. Some Christians believe that the word kingdom in the book of Matthew only refers to that kingdom. The disciples seem to think about that kingdom a lot. Um, God's Messiah, they believed, was going to come and he was going to uh, 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 rule. He was going to kick the Romans out of the country and he was going to set up a new kingdom in Israel. I think that the Bible describes that sort of kingdom. I think the Bible talks about that sort of kingdom. I think that sort of kingdom is going to come when the Lord Jesus returns. It's near, John says, because Jesus has come. But I think there's a second sense of the kingdom that seems to be what John and Jesus have in mind here. Not the kingdom of Israel, but a different kingdom. A kingdom uh, involving the rule of God. Not relegated to a specific time or specific place, but to the overall rule of God. It's a collection of people whose chief loyalty is to God. He rules as sovereign over this people. This kingdom is not located within the borders of any country. It it supersedes the borders of countries. Um, Its subjects now of the kingdom uh, gather in local assemblies around the world every week. Um, Look at Colossians 1, 13 and 14. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Right now, this present reality, this sort of kingdom. Um. If you're a fan of the Buffalo Bills, um, you are aware of the fact that Buffalo Bills fans talk about the Buffalo Bills fans as if they are the Bills Mafia. They use that phrase. They talk about the Bills Mafia. And if you're in Buffalo, you can buy t-shirts that say things about the Bills Mafia and how I'm a member of the Bills Mafia. You are not literally a member of a crime syndicate. But the term mafia describes your loyalty and your toughness and your commitment to the brotherhood of Bills fans. You, You live and work in Buffalo, you have a normal job, you have a family, but you're loyal to the Bills. You're a member of the mafia. Here's the kingdom of heaven. We're here, we're citizens, citizens of a particular country, we live in a particular community, we have family members, but, but our highest loyalty is to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is going to talk about this a lot, it's going to come up a lot. We're going to talk about the kingdom a lot. We're going to come back to, to it again and again in Matthew. Now before we get too much further, we have to talk about how you get into the kingdom. John has a command about that the requirement is in verse 2. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. You're not automatically in the kingdom. It requires repentance. This is what both John and Jesus say. Repent. Again, we could talk about this for a sermon or two. The word repent basically means to turn around, to change your mind. And as the Bible uses it, the word means more than just a change of mind, but a change of heart, a change of attitude, a change of motivation. There are things that will happen in your life because of your repentance. There will be fruit, John says, that is associated with repentance. It's one of the most common New Testament words to describe conversion. I most often use the word turn. I use the word turn a lot. Repentance is a good word. Repent is a good word. It's a, it's a conversion word. And this word tells us something about John's estimate of your spiritual condition. 
You are not naturally part of the kingdom of heaven. You are not born as a baby into the kingdom of heaven. At this moment, the world is divided into at least two parts. There are those in the kingdom of heaven and those outside of the kingdom of heaven. And to be in the kingdom of heaven, you have to repent. You need a spiritual transformation. To make sure you understand that, Matthew writes about John's confrontation with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Huh. This is the chapter of Scripture that introduces us to so many things. The kingdom of heaven, Pharisees, Sadducees. Um, well, we've all heard about them. You've heard about them for a long time. These are two groups within Israel, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There was a third big group called the Essenes. The Essenes don't make it in the New Testament, so we'll pass on them for now. The Pharisees and Sadducees, both Jews, uh, they're at the end, opposite ends of the spectrum. The Pharisees are not professional religious people. They're lay people. Paul was a Pharisee. He made his money by making tents and by religious devotion. He was a member of the Pharisees. They're conservatives. They follow the Bible. They're passionate about the Bible. They're so compassionate about following the Bible that they make all kinds of rules around the commands in the Bible so that they don't even get anywhere close to breaking one of the commands of the Bible. Uh, The Sadducees, on the other hand, are more liberal. They're less sure about the rest of the Bible. They're more willing to accommodate the Romans. They're the elite. The Sadducees are the elite. They're members of the ruling class. They're priests. By profession, they're leaders in the temple. Here they are in the text, Democrats and Republicans. And they get along with each other about as well as Democrats and Republicans do. There is one thing about which they agree, though. They don't like John. So they show up, and we learn that the feeling is mutual. John gives them a hiding, doesn't he? You brood of vipers. Why do you call them sons of snakes? You're the sons of snakes. That's what brood of vipers means. Maybe it's a reference to Genesis chapter 3. Remember that, that Satan came as a serpent? And Genesis 3 talks about his descendants. And John thinks he identifies them. You brood of vipers. Um. John knows what he's thinking. He's a good preacher. He anticipates his audience's objections. Verse 9, he says, Do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. Uh, You need to repent, John says to them, and don't think that because of your pedigree, you are exempt from this responsibility to to repent. You are still, despite your family ancestry, outside of the kingdom of God. Here's a warning to every one of Matthew's readers. Our tendency when we read passages about wrath and judgment and being outsiders, our tendency is to think, well, that really doesn't apply too much to me. I mean, not to me. I'm not, I'm not that bad a person. I mean, not really to me. Everyone does it. Everyone defends themselves. Reader's Digest a few years ago had an article about this. Most people exaggerate when it comes to their own positive characteristics. Most drivers, you ask them, are you a good driver? Most drivers will say they're better than average. This happens in prison. So, so several years ago, they did a survey of British convicts. Uh, they asked these inmates, 18 to 34 years old, uh, they did this anonymously, they did it in some privacy. These were men who had been convicted or imprisoned for acts of violence and robbery. And here's what the study concluded. 
Compared with an average prisoner, the convicts rated themselves as more moral, kinder to others, more self-controlled, more law-abiding, more compassionate, more generous, more dependable, more trustworthy, and more honest. One wonders why they're even in prison in the first place. Remarkably, they also rated themselves, listen to this, remarkably, they also rated themselves as higher on all these traits than an average member of the community. Um, except with one category, namely law-abiding. Then they said, so th- these prisoners said, well, I'm, uh, compared to, to the people outside of prison, I'm kinder, more self-controlled, more compassionate, more generous. And when it comes to law-abiding, well, I'm pretty much equal to the rest of them. Are you as bad as the word repent implies? If a Pharisee needs to repent, if a Sadducee needs to repent, If a descendant of Abraham needs to repent, you do too. You need a turning. You are not qualified without spiritual transformation to identify as a member of the kingdom of heaven. And as a sign of repentance, John baptized people. The the people confessed their sins, maybe right before their baptism. They were immersed in water. Jesus told us to baptize too for slightly different reasons we'll come to later. Uh, This was preparatory baptism, a sign of repentance, a sign of turning with an eye on the coming kingdom. This reminds us, as followers of Jesus, we are turning people. We are repenting people. That's what we do. I keep thinking about uh, Dr. Finkbeiner's sermon on the book of Job several months ago. Do you remember that fine sermon he preached on Job? And what it says about Job in chapter 1, Job feared God and he shunned evil. He turned from it. He turned from it. Here's one way that you can tell you're following Jesus, that you have repented. There are moments in your life you can point to when you turn, even now, when you shun evil. There's temptation. There's an opportunity to to sin. And I'm going to turn from it. I'm going to say no to that. It's increasing. It should be increasing in your life as you grow as a follower of Jesus, that you turn. Here's a third truth about Jesus we hear from John's voice. We'll pick up the pace here. Jesus is the powerful judge. Jesus is the powerful judge. John sounds like a doomsday prophet here, doesn't it? When the kingdom comes, what's going to happen? Judgment. Jesus is more powerful than I am, John says. I'm not worthy to unloose his sandals. He's putting himself in the lowest servant position you could possibly be in. At verse 12, what's Jesus going to do? His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Who brings the unquenchable fire? Jesus brings the unquenchable fire. So the image is not hard to understand. They would harvest the wheat, they'd cut the stalks uh, uh, of grain, and they'd bring it and they'd put it on their threshing floor. Um, uh, Usually some sort of round uh, structure with a floor. And they'd take their oxen, and they'd have their oxen walk in a circle over the grain. And the sharp, heavy hooves of the oxen would uh, chop things up. They'd get the oxen out of there, and they'd take their winnowing fork, and they'd put it in the, on the threshing floor, and they'd throw it up in the air, the, the, the chopped up stalks and grain. And the chaff, the lighter stuff, the chaff, the, the external, not the kernel, but the, the part that wraps around the kernel, and the, the stalks themselves would blow away in the wind, and the heavier grain would drop to the ground. That's how they uh, 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 separated the grain. And, and John says, Jesus has a winnowing fork, and he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff 
and the wheat he's going to gather into his barn, and the chaff he's going to burn up with unquenchable fire. Why is the God of John the Baptist so angry? Why is he chopping down trees and, and throwing things into the fire? It's not the usually way that we think about Jesus. But he's not irritable. This is an expression of his love. Love gets angry. Specifically, love gets angry at what hurts the object of its love. If you never get angry, it's because you never love anyone enough to care. The problem with your anger is not the anger itself. The problem with your anger is that you love yourself chiefly and when you, you get angry when you don't get what you want. That's the problem with most of our anger. But if someone hurts your child or someone hurts your spouse or someone hurts your church and you don't get angry, you don't actually love them. God intervenes in the world to fix what we have broken, to protect what we have defiled, to defend those who cannot defend themselves. Claire and I this week were talking about Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein, of course, made the news and used to uh, 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 participate in sex trafficking, essentially, and, and committed suicide. And, and uh, Claire said, huh, it's too bad that he and all his clients aren't going to be punished for their crimes. And I said, well, not in this life, but this life is not all that there is. God hates injustice. God will bring his wrath to bear. He defends his glory. He defends his people. And this judgment is bound to Jesus in the kingdom of heaven. In the midst of this sort of preaching, Jesus comes to be baptized. Jesus came, just like John came, they appear. Uh, but John is confused. He says, how can I baptize you? I can't baptize you. I'm not worthy. You ha- and, Jesus, you have no sins to repent of. And even if you did have sins to repent of, I'm not worthy to baptize you. Jesus says, no, this has got to be done to fulfill all righteousness. Another phrase. We've seen the word fulfill. Jesus fulfills the prophecies and patterns of the Old Testament. Righteousness, he's talking about God's plan. I need to do this in order to do God's plan for my life. By joining in John's baptism, Jesus is joining in the guilt of all those who John baptized. He's identifying himself with those who need to repent. Here's the wonder of Matthew's story. Judgment is coming. John the Baptist is warning about this. Judgment that's coming. It's coming with the kingdom. And Jesus is the one who brings it. And before though, first, before uh, this will happen, Jesus himself is going to be judged. First, he will experience his father's wrath. The unquenchable fire is going to fall on him. He's going to be the tree that will be chopped down. Why? For us. John the Baptist, uh, Jesus goes into the water like a sinner, just like at the end of Matthew, he goes into death like a sinner. Not for his own sins, but for our sins. In our place. This is how he is the new way. This is why he's worthy of us, our highest allegiance, because he bore God's wrath so that you might escape what's due you and be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. Not on the basis of your own merit, not because you're good at repenting, but because the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Now, what does God, the Father, think about Jesus' son hanging with all these sinners? What does he think about this, about Jesus identifying himself with all of these sinners? Well, 
We have his voice. We have the second witness. What does he say? Three things. I'm just going to mention them. Here's the initiation of Jesus' public ministry. A voice from heaven declares, this is Jesus. Uh, This Jesus is God's beloved son. Well, uh, three things. He says, first of all, Jesus is the son. That's the emphasis first. Jesus is the son. I think this is a reference to Psalm 2, where, where God promises to David that his descendants, on the day that David's descendants would be crowned, Jesus would adopt them publicly. You're the king of Israel, I am saying, you are my son. And here in Matthew 3, this is applied to Jesus. Jesus is the son, the planned son. Not just David's son, he's God's son. Second, the voice from heaven says that Jesus is the beloved. He's the beloved son. Here's the son whom I love. I think this is a reference to Genesis chapter 22 about Isaac. Do you remember? God promised Abraham that he would have a son, and Isaac was born, and God commanded Isaac, Abraham to offer Isaac his beloved son as a sacrifice. And at the last moment, just as Abraham is about to slaughter his son, God intervenes and provides a substitute. Jesus is the beloved son for whom there is no substitute. He is the substitute. Third, he says he is well pleased. God is well pleased. God is well pleased with his son. How does God the Father feel about God the Son? He's well pleased with him. In Isaiah chapter 42, look what it says. Um, The servant is going to come. Here's my servant God says, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I delight in him. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. He's he's gentle. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching the islands will put their hope Look at the confidence God the Father has in God the Son for what he will do. In him, the whole world will put their hope. Here, as the kingdom of heaven comes near, as a meeting between the members of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, together, Jesus stands as the servant, the beloved, the Son. Is he worthy of your allegiance? Here are two witnesses who say, yes, yes he is. John the Baptist and God the Father. Do you need more references than that? Look at who Jesus knows. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come into your presence today and we do thank you for this great assurance and great promise uh, that we see here in Matthew chapter 3 about the supremacy of the Lord Jesus. As you, Father, testify to him, and as you have sent, you sent John the Baptist to speak about him as well. Lord, we confess we are reading this book and we know the stories quite well. Uh, we've seen the flannel graph and the cartoon images and... Um, we, 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 some of us in this room have taught these stories multiple times. Help us to see them anew and afresh that you would increase our confidence in the Lord Jesus. Thank you that in your kindness we have heard this cry, we who are his followers, this call to turn 
and trust in him. The one who entered the water as a, in the, in the, in the st- stead of sinners and then entered death like a sinner too. Increase our confidence and increase our joy in him that we would rejoice in the one who is the beloved son. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus saying, Amen.